You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. So we have been studying through miracles and parables of Jesus in his life. We have stepped out of 1 Corinthians for the summer. We'll jump back into that after um, the Serve the City weekend, and Pastor Dave will be back. Uh, thank God. And um, we will, uh, but for, for the rest of the summer, we're, a couple more weeks, we're looking at miracles and parables of Jesus. Um, today we're going to do something a little bit different different for me, uh, maybe not so much for you. Uh, we are going to look at a miracle of Jesus in all three Gospels, uh, or three of the four, not all, there's four. I know this, I'm a pastor, I promise. Um, <clears throat> there are four Gospels, three of the four Gospels, we're going to look at the account of Jesus walking on water. I'm going to start at the beginning tonight. We're going to turn to John chapter 6, John 6. Verses 66 to 69. We're going to jump to the end of the story to find out why it's so significant. We will work our way backwards, all right? John 6, 66 to 69, and here's what it says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your grace on us tonight, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you would clear our ears and... um, Open up our hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say in your word. God, I, I believe this is such a powerful, weighty message, Lord. Uh, the weight of it, God, is more than I can bear and more than I can communicate, God. It's more than I'm able to do. So I ask for your Holy Spirit, God, to come on and, and anoint my lips, God, to move in me, Lord Jesus, and, and prepare all of us as a body to receive what you have for us tonight. I believe you'll do that, God. I believe in faith, God, that you will give us ears to hear this like we've never heard it before. Um, God, to speak to our hearts and move us in a way we've never experienced before. Lord, so would you do that tonight, God, because you're great and you're holy and you love your people, Lord God. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. All right. So we live in, uh, in a culture in a day and age in America that is really interested in who Jesus is. Really interested in, in how Jesus lived and what he did and what he said. You may have read articles about Jesus and his life. Uh, you may have seen documentaries. There are tons of them about who Jesus is and, and what he said and how he lived. Uh, Time Magazine alone has done 27 cover articles on the life of Christ who he was, what he said, is it true? Steve Jobs, uh, the late visionary leader and CEO of Apple, he's uh, one of the greatest minds of our time, had a profound impact on on all of us in some shape, Lord, the the way that we communicate, uh, the way that we uh, talk and, and text and 
stuff I don't even understand. Um, he had a huge impact on it. And he had a really interesting take on Jesus. You may have seen this quote. It was in his biography uh, by Walter Isaacson. Great read. Definitely suggested it. Um, he said this, Steve Jobs. The juice comes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. The juice comes out of Christianity when it's based on faith rather than living like Jesus, viewing the world how he saw it. What Jobs is saying here is that Christianity loses its substance. It gets deflated. It's empty when it's based on faith. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus had a lot of good things to say and he lived a good life. Let's focus on that. That's what Steve Jobs is saying. And I think it represents a pretty accurate understanding of most of our culture and the world around us and how they see Jesus. They'd agree with Jobs that we should care for the poor, that we should feed the hungry, that we should reach out to the marginalized, that we should resist the church. That's the way most people identify the life of Jesus, as one who came to care for people's needs and to live in peace, which are all good things, which are all things that Jesus absolutely did in his life and in his ministry. But is that why Christ came? Is that the primary reason Christ lived to do those things? To help us understand that question, we want to look at the account in all three Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and John on Jesus walking on water. We're going to look at that tonight. And we want to view Jesus in two forms tonight. First, Jesus as the bread of life. Second, Jesus as the king of the storm. We're going to jump into John chapter 6. Verses, uh, verse 14. But let's set it up first. Here's what's happened in the life of Jesus. He's two years into his ministry, and he's as popular as ever. He has just performed his largest uh, miracle, the most people that observe and experienced a miracle by Jesus to date. He had fed 5,000. Actually, he had fed 25,000. 5,000 was just the count of the men that were present including women and children, it's estimated 20 to 25,000 people were fed by Jesus the day he took a little kid's lunch, maybe by force, maybe he asked, I don't know, uh, took a kid's lunch and uh, took the barley loaves, which were a poor man's bread, and two fishes, and he fed 25,000 people. When uh, the crowd had eaten everything that they could, uh, they were stuffed. There was 12 baskets of food left over. There was an abundance, and the people were so excited. The people were so excited. They didn't get leftovers very often. There were no doggy bags back then. It uh, was eat as much as you can because you don't know when you'll eat again or, or when you'll have food again. Jesus provided all of that. And as this miracle happens, it does something to the crowd. This is where we pick up in John 6, chapter 14. This is what the people are saying. After, people saw, uh, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet 
who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What's happened here? The, the crowd has experienced the provision of Jesus. They've experienced him breaking bread. Um, this crowd would have followed him, many of them, and seen him heal the sick uh, to, to fix the crippled and make things like new that were broken. And what they're thinking is, this guy would make a great king, wouldn't he? No health care. You're sick, he heals you. You're injured, he fixes you. Food provision, and more than you could ever eat, bread on bread. That's what they're thinking. Maybe they're even thinking, if we get Jesus on our side, if we make him our king, we can go back to Jerusalem, and we can kick Herod out, overthrow him, get Jerusalem back. Maybe even Jesus is powerful enough for revolution. Maybe we can take our nation back from Rome, come out from under oppression. This is what the crowd is thinking, and Jesus knows it. Now imagine for a moment that you're in Jesus' shoes. It takes a remarkable person to resist popularity, especially at this level. It's in our nature. We love to be praised. My daughter and I were talking this week, um, and she said, Dad, I just want to try I just want to give it a shot. I just want to experience what it's like to be famous and rich. I want to be a famous singer and actress. Not forever, but I just want to experience it. And I had this great daddy moment where I was like, honey, listen. You know, Jim Carrey once said, I wish that every person could experience being famous and being wealthy. So they could see it's not the answer to anything. And my daughter responded, who's Jim Carrey? <laughs> Which is kind of the point. <laughs> she had no idea who Jim Carrey was. Jim Carrey was a huge actor, lots of money, on, you know, billboards everywhere. Everyone knew. My 10-year-old has no clue who Jim Carrey is. It's fleeting. It's fleeting human praise. And it's circumstantial. These people knew what Jesus was providing. Let's make him king. He'll take care of our health. He'll take care of our stomachs. Let's make him our king. The people didn't want Jesus for who he was. They didn't even understand who he was. They wanted him for what he could do for them. Now you can imagine the danger that the disciples are in. They are Jesus' inner circle, his entourage, if you will, and um, everywhere he goes, they are with him, and the people are in a fever pitch about Jesus. His popularity is off the charts, and they're like, yeah, he could be king, and I could be like his like, right-hand man, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And Jesus knows this. He knows the danger of this, so he sends the disciples away. Mark's account says that he commands the disciples to get in the boat and leave while he, Jesus, disperses the crowd. He commands them. Why? Jesus knows the heart of man, and he knows the heart of the people in the crowd, and he has something special planned for the disciples. So now we're going to jump to the next morning, 
So we leave the evening. The, the crowd has had their full uh, taste of bread and fish, and their bellies are full. And Jesus sends the disciples on the boat, disperses the crowd. Jesus goes on a mountain to pray. And the next morning, we skip to the next morning, the crowd shows up looking for Jesus, and he's not where he was last night, so they walk around to Capernaum on the other side of the lake, and they find him and the disciples. The next morning, the crowd uh, was there looking for Jesus. Why? Because they wanted breakfast. They wanted toast. They wanted bread. They were ready to eat again, and Jesus knows why they are there, what they've came for. We pick it up in John Chapter 6, verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He knew that the disciples had got on the boat and left, and Jesus wasn't with them. When did you get here? They asked. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father placed his seal of approval. I just want to pause for a second. That is, I just love that verse. On Jesus, God has put his seal of approval. And there's something we need to know about Jesus. When he was baptized and came out of the Jordan River, he was baptized by John, uh, it says that heaven broke open, and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus had not done anything yet. He had not healed anyone. He had not preached a sermon. He hadn't uh, provided food. He'd not, he hadn't done anything. His seal of approval, God's seal of approval was on Jesus because of who he was, not because of what he did. That's what he's saying here. Verse 28, then the people asked him, what, was, what must we do? to do the works God requires. How do we get more bread? What does God require for us to get the bread? Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. That is what, that is the work that's required of us. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying it's not enough to live like me. It's not enough to care the way I care. It's not enough to act like me or to see the world as I see it. It's, that's not enough unless you first believe in me. Unless you put your faith in me that I am who I say I am. So we cannot identify Jesus as a wise teacher we cannot identify Jesus as a humanitarian. We cannot identify Jesus as a healer or even as a miracle worker until we first and foremost identify Christ as the Son of God. That's what he says. Those are his words. He says, I'm not here to give you bread that spoils. I'm not here to give you bread that fills your bellies. I'm here as the very bread of life. I am the bread of life, bread that gives you life everlasting. So how do the people respond? The crowd begins pressing Jesus to perform another sign or a miracle. 
How will you do this? What miracle will you perform that we, so that we should know this? And they were just there yesterday when Jesus divided all the loaves and experienced that. And they're asking for another miracle. Give us another sign. So when you have people in your life that say, why don't miracles happen? Because the truth is, miracles never win us over. They never win us over. Miracles are, it's a little, little taste, a little high. Then we want another one, and we want another one. Prove it again. No, 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 prove it again. Prove it again. And that's what the people are doing here with Jesus. What sign will you give us that you are who you say you are? What miracle will you perform? And they make a suggestion. Uh, we have an idea. Moses, he performed miracles. You know what he did? Gave us bread. For 40 years, he gave us bread. You want us to worship you? I think that's a fair deal. That's what Moses did. Jesus keeps responding to them. I am the bread. <laughs> I am the bread. I'm the one. I am sent from heaven. You have to believe in me and you will have eternal life. You have to believe. You have to believe. You have to believe. He keeps coming back to that statement over and over in the sermon on the bread of life. You have to believe. But they don't believe. In fact, they say, aren't you Jesus, the son of Joseph? I know your mom and dad. What do you mean you're from heaven, sent from heaven? And they begin to grumble and complain. And in the end, in verse 60, it says that the people came to the same conclusion that Steve Jobs came to. That countless skeptics have come to. That thousands of scholars have come to. They say this, on hearing everything Jesus had to say, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Who can accept it? This is hard. Who can believe this? And if you have ever thought that, if you're thinking that tonight, even came here with this in your heart, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard one. This whole Jesus thing being God, this is hard. You're not alone. You're not alone if you've asked that question. All of us who have walked this life with Christ come to a place where we ask ourselves, can I accept this? This is a hard teaching. Can I believe this? Do I have faith to believe Jesus is who he says he is? Maybe the bigger question, do I have faith to believe what I don't understand? What doesn't make sense? If you've asked that question, you're not alone. Notice uh, what it says in verse 60. It says that many of his disciples thought this. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? His disciples. We know that there were more than the 12. There were maybe even hundreds that were his disciples, followed him, called him rabbi, sat under every teaching, asked him questions, walked with him everywhere. And his disciples are saying, wait, the son of God? <laughs> Sent from heaven? This is a hard teaching. Who can believe this? In the end, verse 66 says, 
For this time, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is a hard teaching. Who can believe it? Even his disciples. These are the guys that had the front row seat. They watched every healing. They listened to the Sermon on the Mount. They were with him for two years, some of them, up to this point. Son of God, sent from heaven. It's a hard teaching. They did not have faith that Jesus was who he says he was. This was the end of the line for them. So the crowd scatters. Everyone leaves. Everyone deserts Jesus. Well, almost everyone. Verse 67 says, Jesus turned to the 12 and asked them a question. You do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter gives this powerful answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What happened? What happened to these 12? How can they stand when the entire crowd and even the other disciples say, it's hard teaching. That's, that's too much. He's gone too far. And they leave. Why these 12? Why did they stay? What was different? And what's the deal with Peter? <laughs> Since when did he become the spokesman of the group? Um, we're going to look at why that is, but to set that up, I want to read a quote from Tim Keller. Um, he's pastor, best-selling author from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he was once challenged by a person on, on his faith. The woman said in an interview, what if you're wrong, Tim? All the stuff you've written, all the stuff you've preached about, everything you say you believe, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? I love his answer, and I'm paraphrasing it a little bit here, but this is basically what he says. He answered her and said, you may be able to challenge my logic. You might be able to convince me I'm wrong in my knowledge or studies of areas of the Bible. You might be able to do that. But what I have experienced in my life by putting my faith in Jesus Christ is something that would be nearly impossible to reverse. You may challenge my logic. You may tell me I, I'm mistaken on some things I've studied, but what I've experienced in the time I have given my life over to Christ, it's almost impossible to reverse. What Keller is saying is that what we experience in our relationship with Christ, existentially, in our existence, in our relationships, it changes the depth and the substance of our faith, what we experience. Why didn't the 12 disciples leave with the rest of the crowd? To understand this, we have to go back to the night before. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Verses 22 to 33. This is now the night before. So the, the feeding of the 5,000 has happened. The 
Disciples have been pushed off in the boat. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray. And this is where we pick up the night before. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get on the boat. Remember, they went to party with the crowd. Jesus made them get on the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside uh, by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter, gosh, I love his faith. Peter, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, and he, uh, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, "Lord, save me!" Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. "You have little faith," he said. "Why did you doubt?" And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." I want to look at this and and dissect it a little bit because this is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, in the life of the disciples, and without being overly dramatic, I think for us, this is a pivotal moment for humanity. Jesus sends the disciples out on the boat without him. Did you catch that? He sends them. He knows what's coming. He knows the trouble that lays ahead, and he sends them out on the boat anyway. And it was evening when they set off for the other side of the lake. They were going to Capernaum, which was a straight shot across. It was an eight-mile walk to get from where they were to Capernaum, but a four-mile paddle sail in the boat. Yet it says that they ended up in the middle of the lake. There was a storm. There was winds blowing on them. Now, we know that at least four of these guys were trained fishermen. Uh, They'd been on boats their whole life. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to steer and paddle and whatever. (laughs) Obviously, I don't know what that is, but they were getting the boat where it was supposed to be going. And, uh, but they get into some trouble. It doesn't say that they were afraid of drowning. It said that they've been out there till the break of dawn. They've been out there almost nine hours on the lake, just paddling and arguing and uh, tired and the wind is blowing. It's rough and they're exhausted And in the midst of this chaos, the wind and the waves, the shouting and the stress, the disciples see something. It's Jesus, and he's walking on top of the water. Jesus is walking on top of the water. Of course, that in and of itself is a miracle, but what the gospel writers want us to hear, and the the readers who they're writing these letters to, uh, 
was the power of what was happening in Jesus. Because this changed the disciples' life forever. All the disciples would die for this. They would give their lives for this. What's about to happen? It says that Jesus came out walking on top of the water. And what water represented, when when the, the readers would have read this letter of Jesus walking on top of the water, they would have understood and thought back to Genesis where it says that the spirit of the living God dwelled above the waters. And out of that, God spoke and created and created and created. God establishing himself as order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. And what what they're seeing here is Jesus is establishing himself above the chaos Harking back to Genesis, God is, uh, Jesus is attaching himself to the God of the Old Testament. In, Exodus, or in Genesis uh, chapter 6 and 7, God unleashes floodwaters, the waters uh, of Noah in the flood. And what he's doing is he's actually decreating everything that he had created in existence. He's sending out chaos to start over. He's a God over chaos. In Exodus, when the Israelites are escaping Egypt, getting to freedom, to redemption, to salvation, God is holding back the waters. He's the God over the waters. And the readers of this and the disciples in the boat would have automatically recognized this. This is not just Jesus. This is God himself. Jesus is on top of the water, literally dominating chaos under his feet, expressing his power. And that's not all. In, Mark, uh, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus was meant to pass them by. As he was walking on the water, he was meant to pass them by. That's a weird thought. What is Jesus doing? Like just out walking? Oh, you guys are here too. Like, no, he, that word, that, that phrase, passing by, he meant to pass them by. It's a Greek term. Um, professor Garland, David Garland, uh, theology professor from Baylor, he gives some insight in this. He says that uh, it, the Greek word used here for to pass by is parakomai. Parakomai. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a technical term to refer to a theophany. What's a theophany? A theophany is those defining moments. Okay, listen, catch this. This is important. Theophany are those defining moments when God made striking and temporary appearances in the earthly realm to a select individual or group for the purpose of communicating a message, a striking or temporary appearance in the earthly realm. Where do we see this verb used in the Old Testament? When Moses asked to see God's face in Exodus 33, God says, you can't see my face, you'll die, but I will pass by. You hide in a crevice of a rock and I will paracomai. I will pass by, my glory will pass by you. When God told Elijah to stand on top of the mountain because he was going to pass by, That was parakomai. Again, Jesus is revealing 
himself, not just as a healer, miracle worker, good teacher, but as God himself revealed. And as we know in the disciples' experience, as they experience this, that the glory of God is terrifying. How do we know? Because they're screaming like little girls in the boat. They, they were not scared of dying. They was not frantic until they see Jesus in his glory, and it freaks them out. And they're screaming. And then something remarkable happens. Jesus hears their screams, and he says to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. This is what is so remarkable about what Jesus is saying. That piece in the middle, it is I, is better translated as two words. I am. Take courage. I am. Where have we heard that before? When Moses encountered the burning bush and God called him to lead the nation of Israel, Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? Who shall I tell them sent me? God says, I am sent you. I am. Not I was, not I'm going to be. Something, someone totally other than what we can comprehend. I am. Jesus is identifying himself as God himself. And in not in every instance in the Old Testament is it good news for the humans when God arrives. Remember Mount Sinai, God arrives in a cloud and God says, don't touch the mountain, you'll die. When Moses is on the mountain, he wants to see God's face, God said, you can't see my glory, you'll die. It's usually not good news, but Jesus says something different. He says, take courage, do not fear. So what happens in this is Jesus becomes an intercessor. Jesus becomes the bridge between God and man. Why? That we can experience God. That the disciples can experience God. No human could ever experience God the way these disciples do with Jesus. Through Jesus, we get to know God face to face, which would have killed us before. What effect does this have on the disciples? We're not sure about all of them, but we know about one of them. Matthew tells us that in the midst of the wind and the waves and the chaos, Peter asked to go to Jesus on the water. And Jesus says, come. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. What Peter knows is no amount of faith in himself, no amount of uh, good works or ideas or remembering what Jesus had done in the past, none of that will be enough to carry him on the water. It has to be submission to the power of God, believing Jesus is who he says he is. I like to imagine for Jesus, this is a precious moment. Throughout scripture, the only time we ever hear that God is amazed is when Jesus experienced people of great faith or lack of faith. Jesus was amazed by their belief. 
where Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. I like to imagine that for Jesus, this was like what it was for me watching my, my girls take their first steps. It's nothing too impressive, short-lived, but man, it's exciting. You're like, we're making progress. This is good. And Jesus says something in here that's, uh, that's interesting to Peter. He says, as G, uh, Peter goes down under the waves and Jesus pulls him up, Peter says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It sounds harsh, and maybe it was. I wasn't there. But I like to imagine that Jesus said this with a smile on his face. That Jesus grabs Peter and gives him a bear hug and gives him a noogie and says, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? We were so close. We were just getting warmed up. When Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples, something happens that had never happened before. The disciples begin to worship Jesus. And they declare, you are the son of God. Something has changed. They had been with Jesus on the boat in Mark chapter 4 where there was a storm and they thought they were going to die. And Jesus woke up and came out and made everything calm. They said, that's impressive. But they didn't worship him. See, the disciples had experienced something with Jesus that changed everything, the substance of their faith. So much so that the next day, when the crowd is around and, and Jesus is making bold, bold claims about who he is, everyone else says, that's a hard teaching. Who can believe that? And they leave. But the 12 stay. We can believe that. Peter says, not only can we believe it, we know it. <laughs> we have experienced it. Where else can we go, Peter says? To whom shall we go? You have the very words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. Something changed for the disciples. What they experienced with Jesus formed something in them that didn't happen through watching miracles, hearing teachings, or anything prior to that night on the lake. So for us tonight, Let's meditate on a couple things this week. First, we cannot separate Jesus' works and his teachings from his identity as God. It's not enough to act like Jesus. It's not enough to live like Jesus or see the world as Jesus sees it. First, we have to believe on Jesus, put our faith in Jesus. He's not just the provider of bread. He is the bread for us. Secondly, we have to remember the experience we will have following Christ will trump our knowledge about Christ. The experience we have following Christ will trump our knowledge about Christ. Now, I don't want you to leave here tonight thinking, pastor said I don't have to read my Bible or I don't have to, uh, you know, listen to another sermon. I'm out at church, Sunday's free, you know. I'm not saying that. 
You better be here. What I'm saying is, that doesn't save you. No matter how many times you read through this, how many sermons you listen to, study groups you go to, it will not save you. Only one thing can do that. Believing that Christ is who he said he is. Throwing yourself into Christ's lap. Fully believing who he is. And what that means is we get to live, and I want us as a church to be marked by this, living lives of adventurous spirituality. Adventurous spirituality. If your walk with Christ is boring, it's not because of Jesus. It's not because of Jesus. He takes you to crazy places. He will do amazing things. And what happens as you learn about Christ is it moves you to experience Christ. And when you do that, everything changes. You won't ever be the same. Let's pray. God, we want to start this time of worship declaring that Christ, you are God. That our faith is, is completely resting in you. God, that you are our only hope of salvation. God, I pray that the reality of who you are, Lord, and what you have done for us, the way you have pursued us, God, generously, with an everlasting love, Lord God, a love that is long-suffering, Lord. You put up with a lot in your love for us. You're patient with us, God, and you're kind, Lord. You are the good Father that gives good gifts. Lord, would you change the way that we understand you, Lord, beyond your teaching, beyond even the miracles that you did, Lord, would we understand the person of Christ more tonight? God, I believe that as we worship you, Lord God, you will inhabit this place. You're a living God. I believe, guys, we open our mouths, Lord, and we declare you in our worship. Lord, you will meet us in this place. And we would, God, experience you we want God to experience you, not just know about you. So tonight, Holy Spirit, we invite you here into this place, Lord, to have your way with our time, God, and speak to us as your sons and as your daughters, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.